thank you. You can be seated. You know, I, I think you deserve to give yourselves a hand clap for just your faithfulness to be learners and students of God's Word. Uh, there are not many places that people would come out and sacrifice work time and all the different sacrifices you've made in your schedule to be here, to learn, and to grow in Christ. Uh, and so I, I just commend you, and you're just such a great group of people, honored to be here. And uh, I'm going to be talking about um, frustrating leaders. Is that okay? Uh, I'm going to talk about, because we're talking about this mission, and we're talking about the great harvest, and we're talking about being a soul-winning church, and there are some things that the enemy will subtly do to try to trip us up and knock us out of the race. We had some great warnings and encouragements that we need to be guarded against the sins that would trip us up, and that is very true. In Hebrews 12, it says to lay aside every weight and every sin which would so easily entangle us. And I've seen many people over the years get knocked out because of sins, but often I've seen people get knocked out because of those little weights. It's the little pebbles that we allow to accumulate in our shoes that if we don't deal with it, will knock us out of the race. And honestly, I have seen more people get knocked out of ministry, whether you're paid or not paid, you're in ministry. Ministry is, we're all servants of Christ. Do you know that's not an elective, by the way? God calls us servants, whether we act like it or we don't, he calls us servants. The question is not, are we servants? The question is, are we good ones, and are we faithful at it? Did we show up to do it? He calls you that whether you chose it or not. Serving Christ is not an elective. It's a commandment, and it's a commission. And I've seen so many people get tripped up, and it's really just the little things. And I want to deal with some of the little things that I have just seen in my own personal life, and as a pastor leading people, uh, and even in ministry and friends. I heard a statistic that I didn't believe when I started in ministry, and it was one in 10 that enter into seminary or enter into Bible training, Bible school, to go into full-time ministry, only one in 10 will still be in ministry when they retire. Do you know what a gift and a treasure and a hero you have in your pastors, Pastor Richard and Pastor Nancy? Like, they're legends. Did anybody ever collect sports cards growing up, like baseball cards or your favorite football cards? And I did as a kid. And like, if you, if you could just get, you know, a, a, like a Babe Ruth, which never could, or a Mickey Mantle, like that's selling for millions of dollars. I've always wondered, does heaven have trading cards of us as Christians? Like, if they did, would my card be valuable? Like my rookie card. You know, the dorky 19-year-old Eric, you know, clueless look, Bible college, like my yearbook in Bible college. Like, uh, if that was my rookie card, is that like a, a Mickey Mantle or is that just stuck in an angel's shoebox collecting dust? Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know about my rookie card, but I can tell you your pastor's rookie card is like a Mickey Mantle or a Babe Ruth. I'm telling you. Don't take the gifts that you have in your pastors for granted. One way you know how much you're loved is by the gift somebody gives you. 
And one of the ways you know how loved you are as a church by the gifts that God has sent you in your pastors who have defied statistical odds to still be running the race and not just be running the race. They're not hobbling. They're not on walkers and they're not in a scooter. They're still running the race for Christ. I want to be like them when I grow up. And I know you want to be like them when you grow up. We, we want to get to the latter half of our life, and we still want to be in ministry. We still want to be youthful servants. We still want to be valuable in the things of God. But there is a subtle enemy out there. If he can't get you into grotesque sin, he will try to trip you up with these little things that if not dealt with, will knock us out of the race. And one of the greatest things that become obstacles for us that I've seen is this word called expectations. See, all of us enter into ministry with an expectation. But most of us enter into ministry with a wrong expectation. And here's what happens. When we enter something with a mis-expectation, it won't be long before it's a missed expectation. It's like marriage, ladies. You remember your knight in shining armor? How amazing he was from an incredibly far distance, way out there, with the sun, the sun glimmering on his armor. You're like, wow, this, this guy is amazing. He scales castles, slays dragons for me. But then you got married and you said, I do, and you get up close and you realize he's nothing more than Shrek wearing armor. And you're like, what happened? He did what every man does at the altar. He lied. He false advertised. That's what happened. And people enter in the marriage with a misexpectation, and we all do it, and it's the expectation is this. This person is going to complete me. You complete me. No, Jerry Maguire got it wrong. There is no woman there is no man that can complete you. Hey, ladies, have you ever looked at your man and just thought, he is missing something? Like, there is something missing in this turkey. Well, I just want to confirm your suspicion. You're right, he is missing something. Well, what's he missing? He's missing a rib. Because when God created the better version called woman, he put Adam into a deep sleep and he took out a rib. And ever since then, man has been incomplete. There is only one Adam that can fulfill you and satisfy the deepest desires of your heart, and that's the second Adam, Jesus Christ. God birthed a woman, created a woman from Adam's side, and God the Father created a bride for his son Jesus from his side when he was pierced and blood and water flowed, the birthing fluids. Only one person's gonna satisfy you, complete you, fulfill you, and not disappoint you, and that is Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, your pastor, as wonderful as they are, they're incomplete. Every leader, every boss, every department head, 
is missing something. They're incomplete. The only one that's going to satisfy you in ministry, who understands you, who fully gets you, who's fully there for you, is going to be Jesus. Amen. So I want to encourage you about this. As you're following Jesus, and yes, we follow our leaders. Paul told Timothy, you know, as I've trained you, train others. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But even following Jesus, there's going to be things you don't understand. There's going to be misexpectations that we have on Jesus because we're expecting things from him he never promised. And that's what we're going to deal with today. So there's two parallels that you can listen to this message from because they're both appropriate. What we're going to do is do a little bit of an exegetical study on some styles of leadership in Jesus that will frustrate you. Now, could we just agree up front that Jesus is perfect? Do we agree? God in the flesh, incarnate, sinless, love, love never fails, Jesus never fails. Jesus is the only perfect leader. And do you know what? He is frustrating as all get out. Sometimes, when you have misexpectations. Now, if it's safe to assume, and we're going to prove it here from Scripture, that there's some things that will frustrate you when you follow Jesus, if Jesus is perfect and he frustrates you sometimes, is it safe to say your imperfect leaders are really going to frustrate you sometimes? So how do we deal with these frustrations? Because we're here about the harvest. We want to win souls. And Satan would love nothing more than to take you out of the harvest field because you couldn't manage correctly an expectation. We're going to be in a passage of Mark chapter 9, and we're going to find some things that we are going to deal with in Jesus' leadership style and every leader's style that I've known from every pastor. Here we go. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up to a high mountain, up in the green room. And they were all there alone. And there he was transfigured before them. Now we know what happens at the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah appears, representing the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. Then we see Moses, who represents the law. They appear to Jesus. And the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' pets, Jesus' favorites, are there. Well, if I remember my Bible correctly, there are 12 disciples. Actually, if I remember my Bible correctly, there were 70. So like there's 70, then there's 12, and then there's Jesus' favorites. Yeah, but I thought God doesn't play favoritism. He doesn't, but we perceive it as favoritism. Why does pastor have favorites? It's like parenting. Let's be honest. How many of you love all your kids equally? You do. Like, if somebody came up to you and said you had to pick out which kid is going to get lost or which kid's going to die, like, that would be hard on most days. There's a few days that wouldn't be hard. <laughs> Take that one. Like, but most days, but let's be honest. There's some days you go, I love you all. I just don't like you right now. I like you, I just don't like you. <laughs> Sometimes leadership's like that. So here's the first point is this. There are going to be times as you're following Christ that you're not included. I have seen 
staff over 33 years now, this is one of the number one things that get them bent out of shape is somebody got to do something that somebody else didn't get to do. Why did they get to go on that trip with pastor? Why did they get to be a part of that staff meeting? Why did they get to go? And why did they, I didn't get to do Now, I know you don't need this message, but you have a friend that you want to send them this message. Your prayer partner, who always has prayer requests about all the things they're frustrated with about the church leadership. There will be times you're not included. Number two, there will be times you're not included and you're not given an explanation. Like, this is sweet, kind, precious moments figuring Jesus. And he doesn't stop to consider everybody's feelings. Feelings are far more overrated than God rates them. We have a whole culture that thinks feelings are facts. That feelings are the truth. If Jesus was following most leadership theology and philosophy today, he would have had to have a 60-minute meeting with all of his staff to affirm their feelings. Okay, guys, now I just want to let you know, I'm going to take Peter, James, and John, and we're going to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I'm going to let you zoom in so you can feel that you're a part of this incredible experience. And I just want to affirm you, I love you. Mm-hmm. And I love you, and you're special. Mm -hmm. Judas, you're amazing. Mm -hmm. You're a winner. Just want to affirm that. Thomas, don't doubt me right now. I do care about you. Okay, okay. We good? Now, are we good? All right. We good? We good? We good? We're good. We're good. Half of leadership today is just running around trying to manage everybody's feelings that got hurt because of a misexpectation that was misplaced to begin with. If Jesus doesn't take time to explain why he's taking three and leaving the other nine down in the valley, which we're going to find out how fun that was for them, by the way, in a minute. Don't expect your pastor to have to explain every little decision that they do and give you a play-by-play why we're launching this and why maybe you weren't in that strategy meeting, but so-and-so was, and you know you're way more holier than them, and you know you pray much more than them. Because after all, we know Peter's got a cursing problem and he's got his foot in his mouth all the time. Right? Mark chapter 9, verse 9. Now, they were up there, they experienced this transfiguration. Of course, Peter, he stuck his foot in his mouth again. That's what he always does. Mark chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. The Son of Man had risen from the dead. Hey, they just saw Moses, Elijah, and they just, especially John and James, had to hear God the Father rebuke audibly. Peter, Peter, shut up. Listen to my son. Quit it. Like, I'm telling you, their Twitter account was ready to go. Like, they were ready to post selfies with Moses and Elijah, they were ready to blow up like what an idiot Peter made of himself and like, look at what we got to see. Here's an autograph. Why? Because that's human nature. We all want to tell people who we know, where we've been, what we did. And you know what Jesus said? He goes, hey. (laughs) Let's see what he said. Tell no one. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, they got a choice. 
And listen to what they did. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Their conversation was simply between those who were a part of it, and they obeyed Jesus by not telling anybody. One of the greatest tests of your leadership and your character is what you can keep to yourself. That would just shut down most social media accounts right there. Do you have to tell everybody where you've been, what you did, who you know, drop names, and post your selfies with so-and-so to leverage their credibility to somehow build your self-esteem and your sense of self-worth? What's interesting is because John kept this and obeyed the Lord, you read in Revelation chapter 10, he was allowed to witness an uttering that an angel had said that was so powerful that John literally grabbed his notebook to write it down, and the Lord said, don't write it down. Why? Because there's a lesson there. There are sometimes God doesn't owe us an explanation, and there are things that God doesn't have to share with us. And the other reason I believe John was allowed to hear what no one else would get to hear was because he was faithful to keep the first time Jesus said, keep a secret. We all know that one of the fastest forms of communication is that one particular prayer partner in the church. They may, be, may not be an official prayer partner. They've designated themselves as a prayer partner, but every church has one. Right? We all know that person. Like, don't tell that person because they're going to tell the world. Something's wrong inside of our soul when we, identify, we build our own sense of self-worth with who we know. Over the years, I would take different staff to events and conferences where we get to be in a room with really the who's who of, of leaders and uh, church leaders today. And I, I would just watch my young guys, and I, this this one in particular, he had to go get a selfie with everybody. Like, and it was bam, on his instant media account. And he was like, hey pastor, you gonna go get a picture? I'm like, no. I mean, I'll let him get one with me, but I don't need one with him. I mean, like, why? And, and it, it, he needed that. Somehow he found worth and he felt identity in getting to rub shoulders with who's who. Hey, I know Jesus Christ. You can't beat that. Everything's pretty unimpressive below that. Like, I know the one who spoke and created 200 billion billion stars, who defeated death, hell, and the grave, who's riding a horse dipped in the blood of his enemies, coming back, kicking butt. I know him. Like, All right, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. What about the other nine disciples? Now, when they came down the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and teachers of the law arguing, everybody say arguing, how many got that in your church? You always got a religious person that wants to argue. Uh, arguing uh, with them, uh, uh, arguing uh, with them about, he, no, I'm sorry, what are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. I wonder how many times Jesus walks through his church going, what are you all arguing about? The color of the carpet? <laughs> Pastor's new vision for such and such? What are you arguing about? A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought to you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. We've all seen this kid in Target. 
We've all seen this kid in Walmart not getting what he wanted or she wanted. And then they come into the kids' ministry. God bless you, kids' leaders. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. I'm convinced most Christians uh, sow seeds of sin six days a week and come to church praying for a crop failure. Look, you can't sow your oats six days a week and then believe God for crop failure one day a week. It ain't going to happen. They could not. And so Jesus says this. This is actually one of my favorite Bible verses. Oh, now, what we do is we just read our Bibles. Like, blah, 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 blah. you got to read it with emotion. you got to read it, like, in the context. I don't think Jesus said it this way. Oh, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? I don't think he said that. I believe there's a sigh inside of here. In fact, in the Greek, there, there's a time, you, literally the rendering of it is with a deep sigh. Here's what it was. Oh, how long do I have to put up with this unbelieving generation? My second favorite Bible verse is this. Moses in the Old Testament, that everybody was complaining and wanted to kill him, and he's told God this. He goes, God, if you continue to treat me this way, just kill me now. I'm going to make, I'm going to make cards just for pastors. They're cards of comfort. And like, that's, that's, that's a card. Like, that's a great encouraging card right there, because every pastor, every pastor I know has prayed that one at least once. Except your pastor. He's awesome. I, I pray that one daily. Number four, we're going to see this. There will be times we're not included, and it's just not fair. If you expect Jesus to be fair in ministry, just be disappointed right now. Because Peter, James, and John are up on a retreat on a mountaintop under palm trees drinking virgin pina coladas, seeing Moses and Elijah, the Shekinah of God, and they're down there arguing with religious leaders, with an unbelieving parent, you all got that one, and a demon-possessed child, you got more than one of those. And they're doing all the work. They're doing all the non-fun stuff. And Jesus did not come down. We don't see this. Hey, guys, I just want to thank you for your hard work. I know, I know, I know it just doesn't seem fair that Peter, James, and John were up here in the Shekinah. But what y'all missed was Peter made a fool of himself. Y'all missed that. It was really beautiful. And, and, and I just want you to know, I appreciate you. Thomas, did I tell you that recently? I appreciate you. Can I talk about your crown and how beautiful that's going to be when, when you're glorified with me, ruling and reigning, sitting on a throne? Can I, I just, I love you guys. He didn't say that. There are just times ministry is not fair. And I have quit every Monday for 33 years because ministry is not fair. And I'll complain to God. What I love about God is he allows me to quit one day a week. He said, Eric, I'll, I'll negotiate with you. I'll let you quit one day a week. You just have to come back to work the next day. God lets you have your little pity parties. He doesn't show up. He doesn't put on a pity party hat, but he'll let you have it. 
Here's the thing, I got it's not fair. They got such and such, and man, that pastor over there got such and such. You know, there was a church that launched the week after we launched Element Church, and they have like 30,000 people in attendance. Like they open up a building and 3,000 people show up. I have to set myself on fire, cut off body parts, and I can get six people to come and yawn. I go, that ain't fair! I know pastor friends, they get million dollar checks in the offering. We got an offering. More love than offering. Like, praise God. And you know what? That's not fair. But everything in the economy of God, in his mind, is just. But what we don't want is a fair God. Because if God was fair, we'd all be in hell. Because it wasn't fair that Jesus, his sinless son, died because of me and because of you. That's not fair. Stop praying for God to be fair, because that would be bad. This side of heaven, life isn't going to make sense. This side of heaven, ministry isn't always going to make sense. This side of heaven, Jesus is not going to answer every question. In fact, there is not a Bible promise that says he promises to answer every question. He promises to be with you in the midst of every problem. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. But he never promises to answer every question. But he does promise to be the answer to every problem. So if we just go, look, life's not fair, ministry's not going to be fair, and it's okay. Because at the end of the day, we live for one. We live for the audience of one, and that's Jesus. Jesus in eternity is the great equalizer. And there are some things that Jesus said this side of heaven might not make sense, but it'll make sense there. And there are times that the last here will be the first there, and the first here will be the last there. Jesus will make it fair and equal there, because only he has the ability to do that. Why does God allow things in ministry to not be fair? Why does God not answer every question? Why did so-and-so get this and I didn't? I think there's a couple reasons. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him. This is Jesus getting ready to go up into heaven. The disciples are asking him this long-awaited question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority. Number one, there are times that God doesn't answer the question why because he goes, you just don't need to know. But we live in a culture of FOMO. The fear, I didn't cuss, just in case some of you are like, oh my gosh, he cussed again. No. <laughs> fear of missing out. If you don't know what that is, you're really old. It's just the fear of missing out. And it's actually one of the number one diseases that our culture today is bombarded with. And it's FOMO. In fact, listen to the statistic on, on FOMO. 60% of people make purchases because of the fear of missing out within 24 hours. My friend got that. I better get it because I'm going to miss out. 56% of people who experience FOMO are between the ages of 18 and 30. One advantage of getting old, one of the few that I've found yet, is this. We just don't care anymore. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. It has made preaching a lot more fun. 
When I was young and I was worried about like who was in attendance and who was I offending, I had to tip through everything I had to say. Now I gotta be careful I say this. I'd make a statement. I had to give six disqualifiers and qualifiers so I wouldn't offend all the different people in the room. I'm 52. I don't care. I just fling it out there. But younger generation, you have to deal with it. And Jesus is not subject to having to meet your need and deal with the fear of missing out. If you follow Jesus, you're going to miss out on a lot of things you think you need to know, but God says you don't. John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says this, I have much to say more than you can bear right now. Jesus had a lot of things he wanted to impart to his disciples. They just simply weren't ready. Number two, there are, the number two reason is this. Sometimes your pastor doesn't communicate with you certain things, or your boss doesn't communicate with you certain things, or Jesus didn't answer certain things simply because you're just not ready to handle it. I have so much to say to my staff. They're not ready to handle it. So I travel and just say it to other people's staff. <laughs> and then they'll go, hey, how was that trip? I'll go, it's great. You ought to listen to the message. <laughs> Hope that's okay. <laughs> Actually, I have said all this to my staff before, but there's just times people aren't ready. Do you know one of the burdens a pastor carries is the times they want to pastor you and they want to speak into your life, but they know they can't because you won't let them, because you're not ready, because you get your feelings hurt, and your sense of identity would be crushed. Quit confusing the who with the do. Your pastor cannot pastor you beyond the permission that you give them. And there are times I want to pastor staff and I want to pastor people, but I know I don't have permission to, be, to go beyond a certain point. And Jesus wanted to say things to his disciples. He wanted to speak certain things to them, but he just knew they weren't ready. You know what? There are times I ask God certain things, and I'm glad he didn't answer. Because had he told me the answer, I, I would have imploded. Had God told me everything I was going to deal with planting a church, I would have never done it. Would have never done it. Now, I'm glad I did, but you know how Jesus got me here? He didn't tell me things I weren't ready to handle. <laughs> Man, why is marriage so hard? I thought it was going to be amazing because Jesus knew you probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> All right, okay. Third thing, John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd. So this is, I'm jumping out of context, going into the story of the feeding of the 5,000, because there's a lesson here. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him, and he, saw, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy food to feed these people, or all these people might eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus tests us. Now, it reminds me of the story of uh, a lady that died and stood before the gate of heaven, and St. Peter was there to greet her, and he said in order to, this is not theolo theologically accurate, but it's a great joke, and uh, he said, in order to get into heaven, you have to pass a test, you have to spell one word correctly. She goes, okay, Jesus, okay, Peter, what is it? And so Peter says, spell Jesus. Oh, she goes, oh, that's great, J-E-S-U-S. -S. Woo, Peter says, great job, come on in. 
So she's there several months just enjoying heaven. It's amazing. Peter comes up to her and says, hey, I need to run an errand for the Lord. Could you just guard the gate for me for a little bit? You know how the test works. Anybody that comes up, just, just give them the test. She goes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A few people came by. She gave them the test, and, you know, they passed, and they got in. Well, her late husband, her husband, who, when she died, was there by her deathbed, loved on her, cared for her, he shows up a while later to the pearly gates, and she's like, hey, so good to see you. How are you? And he says this. He goes, you know, ever since your death, life has been amazing. You know that young, cute nurse that took care of you? We got married. And right after that, I won Powerball and won tens of millions of dollars. You know that little shack we lived in our whole life as a house? I sold it and bought that mansion we always dreamed of, and we traveled around the world together. In fact, I was just out in the Caribbean sailing in our yacht, and I was riding on some skidoos. I fell off, bumped my head, and here I am. She goes, oh. And he goes, hey, by the way, how do I get in here? She goes, it's easy. You just have to spell one word. He goes, what is it? She said, Czechoslovakia. That's funny. You'll get that on the way home. (laughs) There are times Jesus doesn't tell us things, doesn't include us in things, simply because he's testing us. Now, we think of test as a negative, but God gives us tests for the positive. Why? Because after every test that we pass, there's a promotion. How do you know if you're worthy of more? You take a test, you pass, you get more. That's why James says, count it all joy when you encounter various tests and trials. Why? God allows tests to promote us. Do you know the same Greek word used for test is used for temptation, and it can be interchangeably translated. So which one is it? It's both. Because what God allows as a test to promote you, Satan will try to exploit as a temptation to defeat you. It's simply how you respond that determines whether you break through or you break down. So Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21 says this. A person is tested by the praise that they receive. One of the things that will test you in this journey and in this race is the praise that you receive. There's three levels that I have seen God deal with in my own life and I've seen God deal with others. We're tested by the praise we receive. Number two, we are tested by the praise others receive. The Bible says weep with those that weep. You know, that's actually not a hard Bible verse. The second half of that verse is hard. Rejoice with those that rejoice. I can weep with you when you lose something, when you lose a loved one, but I'll be honest, it's hard to rejoice when somebody else got that promotion that I wanted, somebody else got that raise, somebody else got that opportunity, somebody else got to go on that trip. That's hard. God tests us, not just by what we get, but by what others get that we don't. And number three, we're tested by what we don't receive. God tests us by what we don't receive. John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, he was in prison. He was getting ready to die for having stood for righteousness as the forerunner of Christ. And so he's beginning to doubt. And I'm encouraged that God puts that in there, that one of the great leaders of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, had a bout with doubt. I'm encouraged by that because we all do. And Jesus wasn't bent out of shape that John doubted. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, did I miss it? Are you the one? Help me. And what Jesus said to the disciples of John, he sent back a message. He said, tell John what you see. Tell John the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the Bible says this. You can read the passage clearly. 
After his disciples left, Jesus said this about John. He goes, what do you go out in the wilderness to see, to hear? And he goes, I tell you the truth. Of all the prophets, none has arisen greater than John. Now think about this. John never heard that statement from Jesus this side of heaven because his disciples left and Jesus only said it to the crowd. There will be things that Jesus says about you behind your back of how awesome you are and amazing you are that you might not ever hear this side of heaven. Don't let it shake you. Be like a John. Just be faithful. That's encouraging. Some of you needed that. How do we respond? As we close, how do we respond when we encounter these different tests? Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, now this is the same context, uh, same storyline, just different book. So Matthew, 9, uh, Matthew 17 and Mark 9 parallel one another. So this is the continuation of the story. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now look and listen to what Peter did. He goes, yes, he does. Now we're going to read here in a second, Peter actually had no idea whether or not Jesus paid the drachma tax. There's no record of Jesus ever paying the drachma tax. And so as these religious leaders came to undermine and question Pastor Jesus, hey, this pastor, and you know what Peter did right? Because we pick on him for all the things he did wrong. But you know what he did right? He filled the gap with faith and trust rather than fear and doubt. He defended and covered his leader. He believed the best about Jesus. Hey, does, does Jesus pay the, yes he does. And then we see what happens when, Jesus get, when Peter gets back into the house. So Peter walks into the house, verse 26. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Jesus knew what was going on. And he knew that Peter covered for Jesus. This is important. Because there's going to be so many times that people will cast little subtle seeds of doubt against the character and integrity of leaders around you. And what do you do with that gap? Because you might not actually know. You can be like Absalom, and you can stand at the city's gate, and you can listen to everybody's complaint. Well, you know, if I was in charge, well, you know, I disagreed with that decision too. And, you know, hey, you know, I don't know, you know, if somebody else around here was in charge, you know, I would have done that a little bit differently. And the Bible says Absalom stole the hearts of the people. Why? Because the hearts of the people belong to Jesus. And then the shepherd that Jesus places over the church. He filled it with fear. And I've had this over the years where I have staff that no matter what my track record of trustability was, one moment of doubt comes up from somebody in the congregation, and it's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know what pastor was thinking about that decision right there. You know what your leaders need? They need to lead, because there's going to be gaps of information you have at times. You weren't in the staff meeting. The email went to your junk box. You didn't get the info. And somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, why are we doing such and such? And you can fill that gap with fear, with doubt, or you can fill it with faith, believing the best about your leaders. And that's what Peter did. And I think that's one of the things that made Peter great. 
Last verse, Mark chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus, and when Jesus had gone indoors, this is back to the, they couldn't cast out the devil out of this child in Target. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Number two, when there are just times that you don't know, there are times you don't understand, process up privately. The disciples got this right. They didn't process their questions in public. They processed their questions in private. And this is one of the greatest tools that Satan has to bring division into churches is when we process with one another rather than processing the questions up the chain of authority. When you talk to somebody with your questions about a question you have and they're not part of the solution, that's called gossip. Well, it was a prayer request. That's nice, but that's gossip. It's interesting, you can't say the word gossip without sounding like a serpent. Gossip. Gossip is simply talking to somebody who's not part of the solution. They went up. They brought it to Jesus. You're going to have people come to you because you're leaders. You're going to have people come to you with legitimate questions, legitimate complaints. We talked about that last night. Legitimate concerns. And how you process that is an indicator of your integrity. Do you go to another staff member and have a sideways conversation behind closed doors? I don't know. I don't know. Or do you go up the chain of command and go, hey, I got a question. Look, your leaders aren't afraid of legitimate questions. But don't fall into the trap of Satan. Do you know one of the words that is used to describe Satan is accuser of the brethren? I'm convinced there's too many people that actually don't have time to do the work of Jesus because they're too busy doing the work of Satan. Well, I'd love to get involved, but I'm busy doing the work of Satan. Well, what's that? I'm accusing the brethren, I'm slandering the saints. I'm pointing out all the flaws in the body of Christ. Hey, Jesus is aware of the flaws of his bride, but he stands before the Father as our advocate, saying, innocent, cleansed by my blood. Amen. You're, you're on the wrong volunteer team if you think your ministry is gossiping about the saints. That's the work of Satan. Quit that ministry and join the right one. All right, third one is this. Trust that when your leader gets it wrong, God will always still get it right. That's my last point. Your leader's human. Every pastor's human. Every supervisor's human. And you know what? There are times we just all get it wrong. And even though your leader at times will get it wrong, maybe they didn't get that promotion right. Maybe they didn't make that decision exactly right. At the end of the day, Jesus always gets it right. You remember a young David? And Jesse's coming to anoint the next king of Israel. Uh, Samuel's coming to anoint the next king of Israel from Jesse's house. And Jesse puts all his favorites out there. And David wasn't one of them because he's the eighth child. Eight means new beginnings. But anyway, so David was left out. And Samuel's like, man, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Samuel got it wrong. Jesse got it wrong. Samuel got it wrong. Look. When dad gets it wrong and the prophet gets it wrong, God still gets it right. There are just going to be times in your life your leader gets it wrong because they're human. You, <coughs> excuse me. We serve God. And at the end of the day, they're always, God always gets it right. He will fix it. 
if it's his will. Nothing happens to you. It only happens for you when you're working for God. So the question is this. When you encounter all these frustrations, and you're going to have them, that it's not fair. You're left out. You didn't get every question answered. You didn't get to go up on the mountaintop, and you didn't get such and such, and -and so-and-so got this, and you didn't. How are you going to manage that? How are you going to guard your heart? How are you going to stay faithful to the call that God has on your life? When you look at the word faithful, the root of faithful is faith. You'll never be faithful without faith. It takes faith to hang in there and trust God in spite of what you see. It takes faith in God in spite of what you see to keep on persistently following him day in, day out. But what happens when you're faithful? What happens when you don't quit the call? What happens when you stay close to Jesus? I'll close with this analogy. The night that Jesus was betrayed, all the disciples fled Jesus. Peter followed from a distance. The Bible says that he warmed himself at the enemy's fire and he denied Jesus. There's a warning there. Uh, You want to backslide? Follow Jesus at a distance and warm yourself at the wrong fire. John was the only apostle at the cross of the men. There was a bunch of women there, faithful women, and one guy. But John was at the cross when everybody else abandoned Jesus. And what's interesting about John, listen to these four things about John. Out of all the apostles, John lived the longest. In fact, church history records that he lived to be over 100 years old. I think one reason was because when everybody else abandoned him, he was at the foot of the cross. Number two, he wrote more books than any of the other 12 disciples. Number three, he was given the deepest revelation in all of Scripture, the book of Revelation. And number four, he was rewarded with taking care of the mother of Jesus. John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. There is no other woman in human history that's been more respected than Mary. And who did Jesus trust Mary with? The only one that was there to the end, faithful, even when Jesus was on the cross. There are going to be times your leader's crucified. There's going to be times we're getting backlashed and we're getting stabbed and we're getting thrown at rocks because we're having to take stands for integrity. We're having to take stands to call out truth in a culture that's abandoned truth. And there are just times. And the true disciples that God's looking for are people who will still stay there at the cross when your friends and other people are being crucified or standing with Christ when it's not popular and it's not the cool thing to do. But remember this, John lived the longest. And here's what I believe the interpretation is for us. When we stay faithful to the calling that Jesus has for us, we'll have the greatest amount of life. Who are the people that experience the abundance of life? Ones that are still faithful, who didn't bail on Jesus. Number two, John wrote the most books. I think the people that have the most to say are the people who aren't afraid of the cross. Number three, the people who have the deepest things to say are the ones who are still at the foot of the cross. And number four, the ones who are given the greatest treasures of heaven, the things deepest to the heart of God, are the ones that are still at the foot of the cross. How do we handle these frustrations and these difficulties that we're all going to encounter in ministry? Because it determines what God can give us and what God can do through us in this great harvest. Thank you for allowing me to be with you. Hopefully that gave you some encouragement. Love you guys. God bless you.